turn with me, you can see it on the screen, to Matthew 17, verses 14 through 20, page 670 in your pew Bibles. Page 670, if you want to pull those out in front of you. Um, And hold your place there, since uh, I I want to speak about a a few other things before we lean into that passage. Uh, A few weeks back, it's like allergy season. I'm already starting to feel it. Uh, a few weeks back, we studied the, uh, the faith of the Roman centurion in Matthew chapter 8, if you remember that. And it's a story in which Jesus was impressed by faith, right? He was impressed by faith. And he said of that centurion, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. And uh, he went as far as to compare the religious-looking Israelites that surrounded him as he talked that day to that Roman centurion, right? And stating that they wouldn't find a place in the kingdom of God, but that those who demonstrate faith like the centurion would, which is a hard thing to hear for those expecting a Messiah to come with military power to drive Rome away, to destroy Rome, and not to save Romans, which Jews of that time considered to be dirty Gentile dogs. Now going back further in history, we remember in Isaiah chapter 1, God said to Israel this, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Oh, that would hurt. And we also remember that in Malachi 3, in reference to tithing, God said, ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. So it's more than just tithing, right? Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? And he says, will a mere mortal rob God? Yep, you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates and pour out so much blessing that there will not be uh, be, be room enough to store it. And we remember also that Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what we see from this stuff is that our actions and reactions in life reveal where our hearts really are before the Lord. And it's interesting that Jesus speaks so much about money more than any other subject. God's people over the history have often not been living in faith, right? They have not been living out their faith. Their their hearts have often been far from him. Yes, yes, they often sort of practiced the prescribed religious duties and all those things, but they were meaningless to God without trusting the Lord in faith. And that was all revealed in their lack of generosity, their lack of care of others, their, uh, their lack of justice and mercy and, and an obvious disregard for their calling to be a light to the nations for the sake of God's message to others. 
And the result in Isaiah 1 was that God had said to them, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. That would be hard to hear, wouldn't it? That would really be hard to hear. And there's something to learn there, right? Actually, more strongly said, to heed or to pay close attention to. What are the prescribed practices of church life today? What is our religiosity, so to speak, right? Do we practice them without actually trusting in faith the one who we claim to worship and and acting on our calling in life? And if so, what effect does that have on our prayer life when we ask God to intervene in our lives or in the lives of others or in the life, life of our community or the world around us? I couldn't imagine if Jesus walked through that door and sat down and after the service said something similar to me. Like, this is all just a show, isn't it? Oh, that would be devastating. You know, we pray on Thursday nights. We're starting this prayer walk soon, next month. The question is, is God listening? Are our prayers inhibited by our lack of faith? Our indifference to his calling in all other areas of life. And by the way, I don't want you to feel like, I'm not trying to induce guilt on anybody, but we do have to talk about these things. We do have to think about these things. Because here's the point. We've long since preached a gospel of grace so strongly that we believe in our hearts that God can be used. But I'm here to say to you right now, God will not be used or abused. He is patient, but he will not be used and abused. And this is not about losing our salvation, like if we're not doing something right, we don't have salvation. That's not what we're talking about. This is talking about ongoing daily relationship to Jesus, right? Verse six of Malachi chapter three began this way. Before he started talking about all the tithing and their failure to do all these other things, he says, I, the Lord, do not change. He does not change, right? So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed, In other words, although they acted in such egregious ways towards the Lord, God is true to his word. He said he will save them, and he does. But the relationship extends beyond just salvation for eternity into how we choose to live in obedient faith to his will and calling now. Is our faith vibrant and alive? And what we have to preach is that we can't accept the gift of grace in Christ, yet treat it with contempt, right? We just can't do that. Christianity is not a religion, never a truer truer statement. It's a relationship. It's a relationship. That might sound like common Christian rhetoric, but it's the truth. It is the truth. So what's the gospel message? If somebody asked you what the gospel was, could you tell them, right? Maybe we need a simple reminder. And that's all found on those little cards. I, I'm gonna put a stack out. We had a stack and now they're all gone, but um, 
I'll put them out again. But these verses that I'm going to go through are on that card. So you can just stick it in your pocket and keep it with you and memorize them, right? But firstly, Romans 3.23 tells us that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Have you ever hated someone in your heart? Have you ever looked at someone lustfully, you know, other than your spouse or something like that? Or lied, even a small little lie? On, you know, you, I could list a bunch of things. These are all in the category of sin, which separates us from a holy God, right? We only need to look at the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 and, that we, and see that we have fallen short of the glory of God and that sin all has the same result, which brings us to the second point. Romans 6.23 tells us, for the wages of sin is death, the payment for it is death, But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Which brings us thirdly to Romans 5.8, and that tells us, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we all know, if we've been to church for any length of time, that this only works because Christ was the only human perfect in holiness. He was the only one without sin that walked this earth. He was the only one able to make that prescribed sacrifice of death, that payment for death, or for sin, to to benefit anyone who would accept him as Savior and Lord. Fourthly, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 tell us, for it is by grace you have been saved and this through faith and not this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, not good deeds, not being a good person, you know, blah, 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 so that no one may boast. And this just reiterates the first point, right? That we can't live a good enough life. Only Jesus did. And his work on our behalf is an absolute gift to us. And fifthly, Romans 10, 9 through 10 tells us, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, in other words, if you make a public profession of it, it, your faith, in other words, is not something that you keep to yourself. It's not a private matter. Not at all. You have to identify yourself with Christ in front of others. You have to get over the embarrassment. Right? So if you confess your mouth with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Very simple. Faith and salvation are a free gift, a work of God in us. In Christ, we are given what we do not deserve, and that is eternal life with God, a relationship, a reconciliation with God, in in order not to be given what we do deserve, and that is death, because the wages of sin is death, which transforms a person's heart, births gratitude in us, and redefines our purpose and direction in life. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, 21 states, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All is from God, he says, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. In other words, we're a part of this whole thing now, right? And we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. So we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for, for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the result of the gospel of Christ in us is that we are renewed, we are reborn, John chapter 3, that we are given the ministry of reconciliation. We have, a, we have something to do. As Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And that ministry of reconciliation, those good works, partly is the Great Commission, but I would say even centrally is the Great Commission found in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. In any given problem, it's said that the simplest answer is usually the correct one. So applying that here, we see that we are saved by grace through faith, not a work of religiosity or religious observance, but simply the acceptance of Christ and an ongoing relationship with him. And reconciliation of relationship between God and man, right? That, that in that relationship, gratitude is birthed and we're given a purpose in ministry, in this ministry of reconciliation. In other words, we're supposed to take this story to other people. So I, I'm just asking, let's take stock of our lives today. Going into Easter, it's very important. We take stock of our lives. How much of who I am is given over to this ministry of reconciliation, right? How many have, have I shared the gospel with in my life? How many people have I prayed over for emotional or spiritual or even physical healing? To how many widows and orphans and prisoners have I ministered to throughout my days? How many actual disciples have I made and walked through things with? Do I tithe extravagantly in response to the knowledge that all I have actually belongs to God and I got nothing to worry about for my future? Is this life about building my kingdom or Christ's kingdom. Where is your treasure? What do you most desire in life? Since that is where your heart truly is. Which all brings us to Matthew 17, 14 through 20. Great long lead in to a little story. And in this story, Jesus exercises a demon from a young boy, one in which the disciples we'll see, are unable to drive out. And as a result, Jesus reprimands them for their failure to trust the one to whom they ought to be praying but didn't. And you'll see that in a minute. It would seem that they, act, they might be acting in very religious ways, but their faith was not placed rightly in prayer 
Theirs was a reliance on self. But prayer in a relationship with Jesus demonstrates a relationship or, or, of, of practical trust in his power, his power, not mine, to accomplish more than I might ever imagine, right? And in reading this story, we realize in the faith of the, if, if the faith of the Roman centurion was praised by Jesus, then the disciples' lack of faith is not praised. It says, when they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and he is suffering greatly. He often falls into a fire, into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. So we see that the, the disciples are impotent in faith, having a form of godliness, but really with no power. And Jesus responds very differently with them than with the Roman centurion, doesn't it? Because it continues, verse 17, you unbelieving and perverse generation. This is not the fuzzy Jesus that we preach. Listen, listen to these words. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. Jesus, who was able to feed multitudes with a few fish and loaves twice, calm the stormy seas, walk on water, raise the dead, says the word, and this boy is freed. How many times do these guys have to see these things to be strengthened in faith in him? Even we saw, even in the Great Commission, as he stood before them, resurrected in bodily form, giving them their marching orders for the rest of eternity, right? Or the rest of time, it says, but some doubted. Can there be anything more tiring to the Lord of all creation than having to say it over and over again? <laughs> right? If you have older children, you know it is. Right? Kids who have great abilities, who, who are wonderful children, who deny their abilities, who won't take up necessary risks. Not you, Maddie, you're doing great. But, 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 you know, get paralyzed by fear and anxiety, constantly questioning their worth in certain situations. How many times do you as a parent have to say, no, you can do it, you can do this, you have something to give? How tiring is it to be discipling people and always have to say constantly over and over again, you can be free from this. You can do ministry yourself. You can pray over that person. You can share Christ with them and they just never take the step. No wonder Jesus was so impressed with that Roman centurion who simply said, Lord, just say the word. You don't even have to come to my house. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Amen. Amen to that. It continues, verse 19, then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, because you have so little faith. Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and then it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. 
Apparently, they had less faith than the smallest of seeds in the world, right? If, if I were holding in my hand a mustard seed up here, you would not be able to see it from there. It's literally a dot. It, think about the size of that seed, which Jesus says is the size of necessary faith to see powerful things happen in light of all creation surrounding it. It is almost nothing. And again, Jesus demonstrates his power in this act of exorcism, placing emphasis on the inability of his disciples to accomplish the same decisive healing. In fact, the inability of the disciples to cure the boy's seizures is repeated three times in this passage, by the Father, by, by the disciples, and by Jesus himself, right? And to discover the reason for their failure, it's necessary to look outside of Matthew to Mark's gospel Uh, which outlines the same episode. And there it says, and he, Jesus, said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Anything but prayer. It seems the disciples failed to pray. So they failed to take advantage of God's power available to them to heal this boy. One thing God has impressed on me as of late is that in any and all situations, I am near, if not fully, powerless. I can't rely on my wit, my intelligence, my skill. People are just knots that are too complicated to untie with my limited abilities. I am humbled by that fact. Praise God, I'm humbled. (laughs) Thank thank God, you should thank God that I'm humbled (laughs) in that fact, right? I've realized at 55 years old, my, my greatest and only real tool is faithful prayer. Calling on the God of the universe, Jesus, who feeds thousands with very little, who walks on water, who calms a storm of the word, who raises the dead, who overcomes the grave, who heals people and frees people from sickness and oppression. Amen. This exorcism follows immediately, by the way, Uh, on the description of Jesus' transfiguration, and it's a spectacular demonstration of Jesus' authority over nature when his face shone like the sun, it says, and his clothes became as white as light. And Moses and Elijah appear next to him, and he's speaking with them, and God the Father speaks to everybody present, you know, out of the heavens, and he says, as he did at Jesus' baptism, he says, this is my beloved son, and with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to him. I'm convinced we're not listening. Could there be any more of an impressive display, display of divine authority? Jesus had left all but Peter, James, and John at the base of the mountain, and it's these men who returned to find the misery of the human condition in this little boy. The juxtaposition of those two events, you know, can't be a coincidence, and it serves as a, to remind us of our utter reliance upon God in prayer for all things. Jesus' frustration is palpable. It's heavy. You unbelieving, perverse generation. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Who's he reprimanding? The Father? The disciples? All of Israel? All of humankind? The future church? 
One commentator says, the church of any time which cannot or will not be open to God's doing miracles is the object of Jesus' bitter denunciation. That's a heavy, those are fighting words right there, baby. Jesus said, the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. But sadly, the church does plenty of harm to itself when its own members struggle to act and keep faith in Jesus. The disciples fail to pray, and that is a problem that doesn't seem to have disappeared, right? Christian Wyman writes, it's a strange thing how sometimes merely to talk honestly of God, even if it is only to articulate our, fe- our feelings of inadequacy and confusion, can bring peace to our spirits. And he continues, you thought you were unhappy because this or that's off in your relationship or this or that was wrong in your job. But the reality is that your sadness stemmed from your aversion to your stalwart avoidance of God. You cannot work on the structure of your life if the ground of your being is unsure. Nothing can be built on a faulty foundation, faulty desires, I might say. Building a strong foundation begins simply with the gospel, which is why I said that all that first leading into this story. Coming to Christ as outlined in the, in, in the beginning of this sermon talks about our justification, right? How we are justified freely by God and continues to talk about our transformation into the likeness of Christ and the life of Christ as we live this out, our sanctification, right? And opportunities for this ministry of reconciliation abound in every one of our lives, all around us, but stagnation occurs when we do not grasp a hold of them, when we listen to our embarrassment, when we listen to our fear, we listen to our anxiety, when we listen to our boss who says you can't share the gospel at work. Yeah, tell God that. I'd lose my job for him. Church life is important to you, but listen to this second half of this statement. You're also important to church life. It's where you are ministered to, but it's also where you have ministry to do, right? Practice in here sharpens you for out there. Come early, stay late, Get all you can from church because you are bombarded otherwise. Stop being critical of little things. Harping and focusing on little things is your, is your willing openness to spiritual attack. You allow it. Stop it. Stop sitting there thinking about this crazy pastor with dreadlocks and tattoos. Why should I listen to him? Stop it. Stop it. Stop thinking about that shirt that, that Natalie wore and how you don't like it. Stop it. I'm just kidding, Natalie. Yeah. Stop, stop thinking about how your former church had better music or, or whatever. They, you like those hymns or you like this or you like that. Stop it. Stop thinking about that guy next to you who took the last piece of blueberry pie back there and you didn't get it. Stop it. Stop it. 
get to a community group. We start this Wednesday. Get to a community group. When we do Alpha, actually invite somebody and come to it. We start again January 8th, by the way. Join us for prayer on Thursday nights on Zoom or come over here, you know, from 7 to 9 and I'll be here and you can pray along with me anytime during that time, right? Come on our prayer walk starting next month. We're going to be advertising those, those pretty soon. You know, come to prayer trainings and learn how to pray over people. There are things that you can learn about prayer. It's not just sitting in a quiet room with you and God. There are things that you can do in prayer. And if you need some prayer, come up to the prayer room after this sermon or any Sunday after the sermon. We all need prayer. There's nothing to be embarrassed about. Here's a great, great point. We need to stop being so private. Stop being so private. It's killing your life. It is killing you. We need to become confessional. We're called to that. We need to live in risk. Relational risk. Reach out. Do something. Activate faith. To stretch ourselves in ministry, right? Making Christ's calling central to all that we are and do in life. And I guarantee you, life will never be boring. It won't. Might be tiring. Might be painful. Might be crazy. But it'll never be boring. The disciples failed to pray, but we need not do the same, right? Engaged in this diligent attention to that grounding of our being, right? The foundation of the gospel. We will find that our own power to trust and to thrive will grow as we cultivate our relationship with Jesus. In 2017... A column in the Garden, the Guardian, Giles Fraser describes an incident in his inner city parish. The church warden had arrived early to find a lock on a side door had been broken and somebody had broken into the church. And he found a guy in there in the sanctuary who had lit every single candle for prayer. And then he writes this. He says, later that evening, as the weekly congregation gathered at our prescribed evening prayer time, we agreed that there was much to admire in a man who had gone to such remarkable lengths to simply go into a church and pray. Now, they could have been scared. They could have called the police. They could have overreacted. But instead, they acted in risky faith, and they were better for it. Both that man and the congregation demonstrated something in faith that was and, and trust in Jesus that is commendable. In a moving testimonial, Dr. Catherine Butler describes the series of experiences which brought her back to God. She had been serving as a trauma and uh, critical care surgeon in Boston, and in the span of a few hours in a single shift, her patients had included a 22-year-old guy that had been beaten to death and then two unrelated instances of two 15-year-old boys that were shot to death. And raised in a culturally Christian home, right? Just Sunday occasionally, do this, do that, here and there. She had no faith to support her because she hadn't worked on it, Right? And she felt no need to worship a God who would allow such suffering. At least until she met the family of a man 
named Ron, who was lying in a vegetative state after an episode of a cardiac arrest, and their faith, uh, uh, the, the family's faith in God and their continual prayer resulted, in, as she writes, in nothing short of a miracle as he woke up. And she writes this, she says, the Lord took my despair and fashioned a canvas for his per- perfect work. Just as Christ raised Lazarus so that others might believe, so he redeems suffering. The gunshot wounds, the mourning, the lost jobs, the despondency beside bridge railings for his glory. The power of God in Jesus Christ to move mountains and restore life cannot ever be underestimated. 17th century poet Thomas Traharn said, Uh, Be present with your want of a deity, and you shall be present with the deity. We would probably say it, be present with your want of Jesus, and you shall be present with Jesus. We do nothing without desire. Nothing. Cultivate. Ask for an increased desire for Jesus. Pray that prayer. Say, give me more desire. Make my heart centrally be focused on a desire for you above all things. Be present with him. What is your greatest desire right now? Is it to know Jesus and have others do the same? Or is it something less magnificent, like your own children, your own spouse, your own job, your retirement, or traveling, or even some do-good ministry project out there, because whatever it is, it pales in comparison to knowing Jesus and making him known. Even my kids come second to that. If you desire your spouse and your children to live greatly, then pursue Jesus yourself. Your, Your relationship to him will overflow to them. Is the existence we want just to chase after money or even something so banal as a quiet good life. <laughs> Boring. Just a parcel out moments of devotion, right? Here and there, a church service here and there, a walk in the woods, a couple of hours of de- uh, sort of meditation a week, all the while still maintaining the frenzy of our usual existence outside of those moments to live in anxiety all the time rather than freedom and purpose. Jesus said in John 14, 12, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Is that true in your life? Life in relationship, active intentional. A life given over to Jesus is a life of prayer that demonstrates a relationship of practical trust in his power to accomplish more than we could ever imagine. A life which doesn't count itself as the center, but sees the greater calling in Christ to the ministry of reconciliation. A life of risky faith in pursuit of the divine purposes to which Jesus calls us. Amen? Amen. You know, as we go into Easter, 
These are the things that we need to think about, and these are the things that we need to communicate to each other and to the people around us. Because this is a rescue operation. This is that important. Do you believe that? Every first Sunday of the month, we uh, practice communion, which is this table with the bread and the wine. Um, And we celebrate what Christ did on the cross. And we celebrate his resurrection in doing these things. And we do that prayerfully. So I ask that before you come up today, uh, that you would do that prayerfully, that you would confess your sin, that you would not, want, you would not take anything to this table that's not, that should not be there. But I also would ask that if you have not made a commitment to Christ, that you would res- not, not come up. This is for people that have given their life to Jesus and made that step of faith. Observe, nobody's looking at you cockeyed or crooked-eyed. You know, we are just doing what we are called to do by our Lord and Savior, to remember his death, his bloodshed, his body broken for us. So would you stand with me? We're going to recite the, uh, the Apostles' Creed as we do that, if it comes up on the screen. <laughs> do you have it? Okay, there we go. Just read along with me out loud. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Have a seat. I want you to notice that in that it says, uh, you know, uh, where did it say it? (laughs) He's like going all through. Anyway, it talks about the faith. These are the things. Faith is not some like ethereal magical thing. When, when, the, when the writers of the New Testament talk about the faith, they use the faith. These are the things that are the faith. These are the things that we believe. There's a lot of progressive Christianity out there that's trying to erase all that. We believe in original sin. We believe in the death of Christ. We believe in the resurrection of Christ. We're celebrating that as we go into Easter. We believe these things to be true. We believe in the forgiveness of sins due to Christ. These are the things that we hold on. That's why we read that. Because it reinforces in us what is really true about the gospel. So Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, um, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took took the cup, saying that the cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, as we come to this table, we ask that you would renew our walk, reignite our passion and our desire for you. As we head into Easter, 
to Good Friday, to Palm Sunday, to Easter, we ask that you would reignite our desire for you. That this would not be a story that is rote, that is something we hear all the time. We come to church every year at Easter and we hear the same story, but it is life-giving. It is the most important thing that anybody can hear in, in, in all of history, in all of the future, and we are people that hold the keys to heaven in the sense that we have a ministry of reconciliation to others. Please make us people that are about your heart and not our own kingdoms. And in Christ's name we pray, amen.